if you were here, you know we had a lot of announcements and things. We tried to streamline it this week to, to kind of make things a little better. So that's our testimony time. We're going to jump into the sermon now. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 John 2, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there are ones in front of you. Um, they're on the, underneath the chairs hidden there. Um, in the bulletin, if you look, the page number will be written. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're not used to looking through books and chapters, um, struggling to find 1 John, the page number will be listed there on the bulletin for you. So that's 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17 today. If you please stand as we prepare to read God's word. That's something we do here. It's a, it's a custom that we've kind of developed to show honor and respect because we know as we read God's word, God is actually speaking to us. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you join me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that these words that John wrote to these churches are, are captured for us, that you have kept them and preserved them, that they might help give us life and assure us of the life that we have in Christ. We pray that they would be living and active, that they would come and speak to us today that we might hear and be convicted of our sins, that we might be assured of our forgiveness in Christ, that we might be transformed to be more like him, and that we might walk in the light as he is in the light. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Can I know that I know God? Can I be sure that this path that I'm taking actually gets me there? What if all paths don't actually lead to God? As so many in our culture and society want us to believe, what if it's not actually true? As the world becomes less religious, as we look at the statistics and see, I don't think it's actually becoming less spiritual. I wonder how many of you guys have spoken to somebody who would call themselves an atheist. I wonder how many of them were actually atheist. You see, technically speaking, an atheist is somebody who says that, not just that you can't know God, but that there is no God. And they make a bold, assertive claim on that. There is no God. Most people who would call themselves an atheist, if you actually talk to them, are actually what we would call agnostic. They believe that you cannot know God or that you cannot be sure if you know God. They struggle with the, the certainty of the bold claims that people have made throughout history about this is who God is and still make to this day. I mean, we have however many billion people who claim to know God through Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism and, of course, our claim that we can know God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I wonder, though, if you've ever doubted who God is and what he's like. Or are your doubts sometimes more subtle? Are they questions of whether or not you truly know God, or if maybe the way that you think of God and believe is just not quite right? Maybe it's not the big questions you're asking. Maybe it's the small ones that nag you. Do I truly know him? Am I truly in him? Is what I learned about him true? Well, in today's passage, John is going to, going, going to address a group of Christians. It's, it's probably actually a group of churches that he's writing to. And these Christians have been wrecked with doubt. Their confidence in Christ has been shattered. And they're, they're holding on to any hope. And he's writing to assure them, not to chastise them for their doubts and questions, but, but to assure them that they do know Christ and that they are in him. He wants to build them back up. He wants to bring their confidence back. Assure them that they can know that they know God. And as we, we look at this passage, we're going to break it up into four parts. We're going to start with verses, the first passage, our part will be verses 1 through 6, and it's going to be know God. Secondly, we're going to see that John wants you to love your brother. And thirdly, to know yourself. And fourthly, to not love the world. So we're going to see how John wants us to know God, and that leads into loving your brother, and then leads to knowing yourself, knowing who you are, and the warning to not love the world. Well, know God, John, 1 John 2, 1 through 6. As John, 1 John 2 opens, he addresses these people. He calls them beloved, doesn't he? He's writing these with the terms of endearment. He cares deeply about these people, doesn't he? He loves these Christians. He's got a very fatherly relationship. If you read 1 John, you see that. He, he feels like a father to them, caring, nurturing them. 
They're confused and they're afraid. Their confidence has been shaken. And as we read this book, we're going to see that false teachers have come in among them and taught that Jesus was not the Christ or that he did not come in the flesh and had false teachings about who Jesus was. And John is reassuring them that they have known the truth, that John has seen Christ and known Christ. And as he opens, he says, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. John doesn't want them to sin. He wants them to live in righteousness and to walk in the light, right? Isn't that so much of the theme? But, but as we read that, he so quickly has a, a but in there, doesn't he? He says, but if anyone. He doesn't want them to get too discouraged because they're of any struggle that they might have because they might accidentally fall into sin. He wants them to know something, to comfort them, to assure them, and that is that they have an advocate with the Father. Do you see that? Have you thought about that? When you struggle with doubt, do you go back to that point? Well, if you read John's gospel, Jesus frequently, well, in the last few chapters of his book, he talks often about the Holy Spirit as an advocate, or sometimes it's translated comforter. It's the same word there, and he says that the Holy Spirit's going to come to the disciples. He's going to send him to them when he leaves. But, but here we realize that Jesus is also our advocate. And John's clear, this advocate is an advocate with the Father, someone to go with us on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ. He's not just Jesus Christ, he's Jesus Christ the righteous or the righteous one. It's so important that we keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, because we see that if we do sin or when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father if we believe in Jesus Christ. And it would be bad news if we did not have that person to go for us because how would we go before this righteous and holy God without an advocate, without somebody to go on our behalf? And not just somebody, but somebody who is the righteous one, the righteous. We have the righteous advocating for us when we sin. Well, I wonder here today, last week we talked a lot about confession, and that's part of what this is getting at, is is building off of that idea of of walking in the light and therefore confessing our sins, because then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I wonder if you have confessed your sins. I wonder if you are worried, questioning whether or not God hears you, whether or not he cares about you, whether or not you have been good enough for him. those questions have come in your mind, then, then please hear the gospel message. We cannot defend ourselves before God. We cannot. We are sinners. We all have fallen short. But we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one. And that is great news, isn't it? Let's put our faith, let's believe and trust in him. And John goes on to actually say, words that that further this idea that that gives great comfort to us or should and ought to he tells us that jesus he is the propitiation for our sins and here's a word that we don't often use in day-to-day language do we um 
when I was working for CentOS, I didn't walk to my customers and talk about propitiation with them. Um, I usually asked about the weather and things like that, you know, just small talk. Um, propitiation, you know, your pastor Nick has, has often and, and just reaffirmed that the definition of propitiation being wrath absorber. And here we have it in the text showing us. But this isn't something that is not controversial. A lot of people tr struggle with this. And if you followed the news in the past, well, it was about five years ago, actually, um, a popular modern hymn, In Christ Alone, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that song. I hope you are, because we sing it, so. Um, if you're not, then we maybe need to sing it more. But one, one of the larger denominations in the United States actually decided to leave that hymn out of their hymnal. They had wanted to change one line in the hymn. Other than that, they loved the song because the hymn says the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change it to the love of God was magnified. They simply didn't want to speak of the wrath of God. It's not that what they wanted to say was wrong. The love of God was magnified, but they were ignoring an important point that John makes here, that God's wrath was satisfied. And the authors refused to allow them actually to amend the song and said, if you want to use our song, you use our song. Do not change it, please. That they felt that that was kind of wrong to them. You see, the idea of wrath is not popular today. People are offended by the idea that God could be upset over sin. But the Bible doesn't avoid that topic, does it? Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all un ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this kind of talk really doesn't settle well with us, does it? It doesn't settle well with our culture at all, and so we recoil sometimes from it. But you know what? This should give us comfort. This should give us strength, knowing that God has provided propitiation for our sins. And as we talk about propitiation, one of the things that helps us understand it is how it actually differs from the pagan concept of that time. So if you look at the word in the original languages and see how it was used in the cultures around where John is writing in the ancient world, you would see that propitiation was meant to appease some angry gods that were just really fickle and, and moody. You know, if you read the classic words, works like the Odyssey or the Iliad and some of those old Greek stories, you see these gods who are actually very human in their, in their attitude and character. You see them always being fickle and needing kind of almost, it's almost like you have to bribe them to get them to do something you want, to give you a good travel on the sea or whatever. You know, like, oh, if I just give you a little bit more sacrifice, would you be okay? The idea of propitiation to them was basically bribing the gods, but that is not what we have here, is it? You see, oftentimes we have this view of God, of being angry with us, the Father being angry and wrathful. God is wrathful at sin. But God is also not a spoiled brat like those gods of the Greeks and of the ancient world. He's not fickle. He is unchanging. And do you know what? Do you know what is the big difference between propitiation as the ancient world saw and, and propitiation as the Christian message declares it? It's that God provides the propitiation. He actually provides the means. No, God cannot just wink at sin you know, we think sometimes if we get rid of God's wrath, it'll be all right, but, but then we're saying we're demeaning 
our sin. We're saying it's not that bad. We're saying God is not that holy or that righteous or that just. It diminishes God. But brothers and sisters, many of us, we fear God as an angry judge. But do you see what happens here? The Father actually sends the Son. Propitiation isn't something that we have to struggle with. It's something that God actually does on our behalf. He knows his wrath better than we do, and he actually provides the means to appease it. He goes through sending the Son, Jesus Christ, to live that perfect, sinless life and to do what we cannot so that we might have fellowship with him, so that he might have fellowship with us. We don't have a moody God who we just have to continue to kind of make happy. We have a God who loves us who would love us enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to provide propitiation. The God of the Bible is not the God of the pagan world. It is not the God that we so often imagine him to be. He is a God that is rich in mercy and grace and love, a God that would go through such great lengths to deal with our sin because our sin was that bad. It was that heinous, but, but also because God is so great, because his love is so great, because his mercy is overflowing, because he is so gracious and wonderful. And we have to understand that. And as John writes these people, we see that the false teachers have denied that Jesus is the Christ or that he actually came in the flesh. And these would undermine the very notion of our sins being atoned for, of being forgiven, because we wouldn't have that Savior that we need. And therefore, we see how easy it was for them to cause struggle, to cause insecurity with these believers. But God is loving and gracious and kind. He He is the one who who took care of his wrath, who had that plan. He didn't leave it up to us. He did it because we could not. John, in just a couple chapters, will write, we love because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, We could never earn God's favor. We could never deal with our sin, but God, because he loved us, dealt with it. And therefore, our sin and God's wrath isn't the final answer for believers. The cross is, and we therefore have fellowship with him. We can live with him in joy. Well, this verse goes on to, well, it it includes the phrase at the very end, And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this is also a confusing statement because so often we want to take this as saying that every person in the world, therefore, has his sins taken care of, that they're propitiated. But if we think about this, we know this doesn't actually fit with the rest of the Bible, does it? Because if if everybody's sins are forgiven, if, if God's wrath has been taken away from every single person, then there would be no hell. There would be no judgment. There would be no need to dismiss these false teachers because why? 
But you know what? John is making the point that the gospel is not meant to stay with them. It's not that everyone is going to be saved. It's that people from everywhere will be saved. What is clear is that Jesus' death is not the propitiation for the sins of every person in the world. If so, missions would be meaningless, wouldn't it? But his death did bring propitiation for all nations, all people groups. And that's because there is no other means, no other person, no other being could provide salvation outside of Jesus. No other plan of salvation exists. He is the only way. And rather than making missions meaningless, this verse gives missions its greatest meaning, doesn't it? This message, the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus forgives sinners, that that he has provided propitiation, must go to all so that as we see in in Revelation at the end of all time, we're going to have people from every tribe and tongue and nation praising God. That is the promise. That is the hope. That is what we wait for and long for. We hope and watch and wait and eagerly strive that we might preach the gospel to all, that, that people from everywhere, from all over the world, might walk in the light. And that is why we eagerly await and pray for our friends and family members who have just gone to Lebanon on our way back. It's because we want to hear about the work of the gospel, isn't it? That we want to hear about how God is calling people from their sins to walk in the light, even on the other side of the planet. And it's why it's so hard but so exciting for Caitlin and I to once again say goodbye to our friends, as we did this week, who are preparing to head back to South Asia to see churches planted where there is no church, to see a people group hear the gospel where it has not been proclaimed. Because we want them to believe, to walk in the light. We want them to know the Father and to have their sins dealt with fully and finally by the work of Jesus Christ. Well, John goes on to tell us that that we know God if we keep his commandments. Whoever says... In verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Brothers and sisters, we can know that we have that propitiation. We can know that our sins have been forgiven, and we see that because that plays out in our lives. It transforms us. We turn from being a people of rebellion to a people who walk in the light, a people who love God and obey him. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, what does it mean to love God? How can we know we love God? Especially, we cannot see God, so how do we know that we love him? Well, that's what John wants to teach us in the next passage when he commands us to love our brother. So in 1 John 2, 7 through 11, John makes this point. John informs us that we can actually know that we know God. And we know this if we obey him. But what does it look like to obey God? How do we obey God? Well, to love God is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And John actually starts this passage as part of the passage 
in a way that's probably confusing to many of us. Um, He says he is not writing a new commandment, but an old one, but then he says it's old, but it's new. It's kind of like, John, make up your mind. Is this old or is this new? Which one is it? Like, we can't have both, can we? Well, John is making the point that it is both old and new. I think that's probably obvious, but confusing. So why is the commandment old? Well, to understand this, this passage and, and the, what John's talking about here, we, we really need to go to the Gospel of John. When John, in John 13, he tells his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Have you ever read that in the Gospel of John and thought, that doesn't seem that new, does it? I mean, if we read the book of Leviticus, sorry, speaking is difficult sometimes, Leviticus, um, we would read one of the great commandments, to love our neighbor, right? Deuteronomy says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when asked what the greatest commandment was, we see in the New Testament that that it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor. Love isn't a new commandment. It's actually an old one, isn't it? And when we think about what John's talking about here, about a commandment, we see that kind of affirmed in chapter 3. He says, and this is the commandment. So in this very letter, he tells us this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. John is calling the believers, well, first he says, to believe is the commandment, so we believe and therefore we love one another. I wonder if you were asked the two most prominent descriptions of this church what would you choose? What would you say? If somebody came to you and said, how would you describe your church? Two ways. Just two. I don't want three, four, five, six, seven. I don't want just one. I want two. I wonder, would it be that we believe in Jesus Christ and we love one another? I mean, what a simple description, isn't it? It's so simple, yet it's so profound. I wonder if we asked those outside the church, if you walked up to people in the community and said, you know, what do you know about Timberline Baptist Church? What do you know about Christians? How would you describe them? Two ways. Not three, not four, not one, just two. Do you think the world would describe us as those who believe in Jesus Christ and love one another? Well, I I really hope so, and I hope that we grow in that because I see that. I see that bearing fruit here. I see a church with people who believe in Jesus Christ who want to hear about him. You know, when I hear about people coming to this church and joining, and we've seen quite a few people do that, so often what they say is, we love the preaching, we love the word, we want more of that. And as we come in and you see this community, this fellowship, you guys love one another. You do. You really do. But as John describes it here, this is one of those things that that we continue to do and continue to grow in for all time. We have to continue getting better and loving one another more and more. We have to continue to put our faith in Jesus every day and believe in him. 
as the love of God is perfected in us. We do this because this is how we honor and glorify God. We love because he first loved us. And it's important, too, because if we read the words of Jesus in John 13, which we just read verse 34, and if you read the next verse in verse 35, he tells them that it is by that love for one another that the world will know that they are his disciples. The context makes this clear, especially that, that whoever loves his brother walks in the light. But whoever hates his brother walks in darkness. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know that you know God? Believe in Jesus and love one another. Continue grow in that. We constantly have to put to death the flesh and fight and confess our sins. But if we fight together, if we love each other, oh, we can have great assurance as Christ is seen in us and working in us. But why is this commandment new? The commandment to love one another is one that we've seen in the Old Testament, and actually, if we think about it, it really goes to the very nature of God himself. John will tell us that God is love. Love is at the very nature of God, and, and if we thought and, and went into the deep mystery of the Trinity and, and knew and thought about the fact that for all eternity, the Father has been loving the Son and the Spirit, and they love each other, Love is something that goes beyond even creation. Yet the newness we see is revealed by the phrase John says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The newness is in the fact that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does that mean? That's one of those phrases where John seems kind of, it sounds very poetic and wonderful, but you might sit back and think, what are you talking about, John? What does that actually mean? Um, well, if you read the Gospel of John, John often in his Gospel, because of Jesus' own words and John's words referring to Jesus, shows that Jesus is the light, and his coming is the light coming into the darkness. The commandment is new because Jesus has come. Up until that time, we see the command to love, and we're waiting for its final fulfillment. We're waiting to see what it really looks like, the, the full light shining and revealing what love is. And we see that in Jesus Christ. We see love in that he would love us and die for us. We see it because of who Jesus is. God has come in the flesh and revealed himself to us. And if God is love, then in Jesus Christ, love is revealed in its truest and fullest form. If you study church history, one, a fairly famous quote from Augustine, one of the prominent early church his, his, theologians, pastors, um, he wrote of the Bible, the new is in the old concealed the old and the new revealed. Do you see that? So as Jesus comes, all those things that are in the Old Testament that, that are rooted in there, and it's pointing towards that one end, and that is Jesus Christ. And as we see Jesus Christ, all that has been there is revealed. 
And if you read the New Testament, that's, you'll, you'll see that's how the New Testament authors see the Old Testament. But it's passing away. We see that we still wait, though, don't we? Because the true light is already shining and the darkness is passing away. But it has not passed away. We still live in a world that, that has fallen, that is racked with sin and evil. And we don't see Jesus, do we? At least not in the flesh, not physically. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is, he is there advocating for us, right? But one day, he will come again and wipe away all darkness. John speaks of hate in verse 9, doesn't he? He contrasts that with loving your brothers to hate your brother. And I think he's trying to draw a contrast between the way that these Christians have been living their life, their, their love for each other, and the hate that those people who have false taught, those false teachers have come in and hated them and tried to steer them away from the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful. We must hold to the, to the gospel. We must hold to the truth of the scriptures. We must also realize the world views Christians and churches so often as those who backbite, who are hypocrites, not by love, not by faith. And what's the remedy for that? Well, well, one is what we talked about last week in confessing our sins. Instead of being backbiters and hypocrites, let's confess our sins. Let's say I'm struggling or I fell and I just need to confess and I need forgiveness and be honest about our struggle so that we might be cleansed and forgiven. And we must realize that at a very real level that the church is, is like a hospital. It's filled with those who know they are sick. Hopefully we know our sickness and come to receive healing from the great physician that really makes us not hypocritical and stand in judgment. It says we come to hear the word so that it might wash over us, change us and transform us because we know we are not perfect but we want to be like Christ. We want to be healthy. The world is filled with those who are sick and spreading disease. They just don't know it. They don't acknowledge it. I don't know if you guys are like me, but there's a point in time when I start to feel myself getting sick and I realize I'm probably getting sick, but I keep denying it to myself. No, 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 it's probably I just didn't get enough sleep last night or maybe I'm not drinking enough water or something else besides the fact that I'm getting sick. That's kind of how the world is, or, or as someone who doesn't know that they have cancer, doesn't know what's wrong with them, doesn't know that they are sick, and they're walking around pretending to be healthy. Brothers and sisters, we must realize that as we come to church, we don't go to find a bunch of healthy people. We go to find people who are sick, who we can help care for, and together we, we come together to have the healing work of Christ. But that means that that our church is going to be a place that might be a little messy at times. It might be, you know, you don't go to hospitals because they're clean and neat and orderly. You, you know that there's going to be sick people everywhere. You go and you do the little antibacterial hand scrub as much as you can so that you don't get sick as well. Um, and we have to be careful because in some respects we have to be cautious and take care of ourselves so that we don't get sick from the sickness around us but that we might help others and not infect them either. 
we all need the medicine of the gospel so we might be made well. We do this by loving our brother, by caring for each other. So, so in this hospital, we, are, we don't just come to the nurses, but we are the nurses as Jesus, the great physician, comes and heals us. We care for each other. We watch out for each other. We love each other. We make sure that we are walking in the light. That is what it means to love your brother. That's how you know that you know God. Well, John goes on to say that we ought to know ourselves. And these last two points, if you're worried, will be a little bit shorter than the first two. Um, it kind of just gradually got shorter. We spent a lot of time in the first few verses. But, but we want to make sure that as we know God, and we know that we know God, and we know that by loving our brother, that we also know ourselves. So John, in this next passage, it actually, verses 12 through 14, seem a little bit out of place. You know, if your Bible probably indents them, makes it like a poem or a song or a psalm. Um, and in some respects, it is kind of a psalm. It's got that parallelism like so many of the psalms. And he says, I am writing to you, I'm writing to you. And John here, you know, he knows these believers. He cares about them, remember? He's like a father. So he tells them, if you have believed in Jesus, if you are loving one another, you can rest assured, you can know that your sins are forgiven, that you have been made right with God, that you are no longer living under his wrath, that you are no longer living in darkness but light. And now he just reassures them. He says, I know you. I'm writing to you. And he, he addresses it to three groups, little children, fathers, and young men. And then he addresses the, little, the children, the fathers, and the young men once again. And here, it doesn't seem that he is actually addressing biological age. It seems like a spiritual maturity level is what he's getting at. He's trying to address these, all of them as, as his dear children, as those who are beloved. But he addresses them, and if you look at how he addresses them, it's really fitting to where they are in their spiritual maturity. So he starts, he says, I'm writing to you little children. And he reminds them of the basic truth that their sins are forgiven for his namesake, for Jesus' namesake. These little Christians are just growing in the faith and they just need to be rooted in the, the base and the foundational truth that we all need to remind ourselves of. They're just getting up and beginning to walk and that, that walking and that strength is rooted in the fact that their sins are forgiven for Jesus' namesake. And then he addresses the young men, reminding them of their place in Christ. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Notice in all of these, he says, I'm writing to you because. And that because is always an assurance, not because you might do this or you will do this or I hope you do this, but because you have or you are. He knows these people are doubting and scared and he, and he knows that they are wondering and questioning, did I miss the boat? When we believe this, were we right? Because these false teachers have come in and they've scared them and they've probably told them that there's secret knowledge to be had. You can only know God, or you can know God better if you do these things. And look at what I know. And look what I found out, and look what I've discovered. And, and it's actually denying the very foundation 
that their faith, that their salvation was built upon. He, he writes to these young men because they have overcome the evil one. I wonder, do you stop and think about the ways that you've seen victory in your life? The way that sin has been overcome, do you, do you get together with other people in accountability so that you might fight sin, that you can see this victory, this overcoming of the evil one in your own life? As you grow in the faith, have you seen that victory? Have you fought against sin? Have you said no to the flesh? Because I guarantee you have. And are you there with others confessing and fighting side by side? Are you doing that? Because if so, you've overcome the evil one. And he writes to the fathers because they know him who is from the beginning. He writes to these, these men who are fathers in the faith, probably more like elders in the church. They are mature. And he's reminding them where their faith goes and who they have known. Things haven't changed with him. God is the one who is from the beginning. He is the unchangeable one. If you think about it and look about it, they're, they're going to the one, they know the one who is from the beginning. These false teachers might come in, but God has always been there and always will be. Brothers and sisters, that should give us hope. That should give us assurance, knowing God is God. And if we are a Christian, if we know him, we know the one who is from the beginning. And he reaffirms that later to, in verse 14. He writes the same thing. To, if you notice, he just reaffirms what he's already said, essentially, except for when he gets the young men. He says, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So, brothers and sisters, as we, we need that sense of security, we need to be reminded that God's word abides in us, that the word of life, when we believe the gospel, when our sins are forgiven, we we trust in Jesus. That is, that is a very real beginning of overcoming the evil one because we've turned from darkness to light. We have trusted in God's word. We all need each other to come alongside each other, to walk side by side, that we might know the one who was from the beginning, that we might overcome the evil one, and that we might know that our sins are forgiven, and that we might be reminded of that truth constantly, because when we see the world, the world wants us to not believe that. It wants to shatter and cause us to doubt. Brothers and sisters, John sets such a good example of reminding us of who we are and what God has done in our life. Well, John assures these Christians, he tells them who they are in God. He tells them that first that they might know God, right? And that to know God is to love your brother. And he reminds them of the faith and, and the work that God has done in them to assure them. But he doesn't leave it there. John warns them, he commands them, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John reminds them, God abides forever. He has always been and always will be. And if you are in him, you are secure and you will abide forever. But if you wander out pursuing the things of the world, know that the world is passing away and those things will pass away too. Where is your hope? What is your desire? Is it to know God? Christians, we have to be careful. Where is our hope? Where is our desire? And as I read this passage, I couldn't help but think about how important it is to take this seriously because one concern I have is that oftentimes Christians, well, it used to be that they, they believed that they could simply walk into a Christian bookstore and whatever's on the shelf must be good and it must be right. Now we don't really have bookstores anymore, Christian bookstores, because everything is digital and online and everybody goes to Amazon, so if you find a book that claims to be Christian on Amazon, or even if you're watching preachers on TV or on the radio, are you being discerning? Because remember that there are false teachers today, just as there were in John's time. And you know what? Some of those false teachers, they, they look like Christians, they act like Christians, and they will use the name of Jesus. They lurk in plain sight. And one of the things that... that why I thought of that with this passage is because so many of them will tell you that God is there to give you worldly pleasures, to give you the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. They tell you that if you do these things for God, he will bless you and you will have that new car you want. Or if you pray harder, you can, can kind of turn God's arm a little bit and he will be there and give you what you want, that raise, that job that your life might just be a little bit easier. Or maybe it's more subtle. Maybe we just come to believe and we hear people who are even more subtle because we're, we're smart enough oftentimes to know that that is not the gospel, that, that what's called the prosperity gospel is a, is a lie, and we see that and we can fight against it. But sometimes we really believe that, you know, when we don't hear our prayers answered, if we just prayed a little harder, if we were just a little bit more righteous, just a little bit more holy, we could get what we wanted instead of looking and desiring God rather than the things of this life and trusting him. God is here to give us that which is eternal. He's here to give us himself. Do you guys see that in this book? I hope you do, that, that our fellowship is with him. If we believe in the gospel message, it is never ending because God has no beginning and will have no end. So when we are in him, we have everything we could ever imagine and want. This present world is passing away. You know, I remember when I was younger, the, uh, the old bumper stickers and the t-shirts, he who has the most toys wins. That is not Christian at all. To win is to, to sacrifice for ourselves or for others as Jesus sacrificed himself even to death on a cross and to take up our crosses and die to oneself that others might know him and love him and that we might have fellowship with him. 
as brothers and sisters, that is where we find true joy, is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the Father and being in him. That the world is passing away. Don't let the world tell you that you will find your fulfillment. You know, you turn on the TV, you turn on, you know, your Facebook or your email, and there's going to be ads popping up on the side and everywhere telling you if you just had this, you just did this, you would be happy. Well, you might be happy for a short period of time, but know that it's temporary. Know that it's not eternal. Know that only God is. Do not love the world or the things in this world. John concludes by telling us, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And John has told us to walk in the light as he is in light. He's told us what that means. It's interesting that this phrase could be taken a couple ways. It could be, some of your translations might even say, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. I think we have to understand that, that we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, because Christ came and perfectly obeyed God's law. He lived perfectly. He always loved his heavenly Father. He loved his neighbor as himself. And therefore, we come in Christ and walk as he walked. And we do God's will. And if we looked at the scriptures, Paul is clear that God's will for us, you know, so often we struggle trying to find God's will, don't we? What is God's will for my life? What am I going to do? Well, Paul tells us, God's will is your sanctification, that you might know him and be like him, set apart for a life of worship. We so often use worship to refer to the singing part of our service, don't we? But if you look at the term and the way it's used scripturally, it is, is, means service. It's what we offer to God. And Romans tells us that our entire lives should be lives of worship. That is God's will for us. That we would obey his commandment, that we would believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that we would love one another. That is what it means to be set apart, to bring him glory and honor by being transformed by knowing Christ and being transformed by him into his image, into his likeness. And then we abide forever because we are in him and we are in God who is eternal. John closes his section with a promise, doesn't he? he? He tells us that the one who does the will of God abides forever. John is assuring these believers that they, by believing and by loving, are abiding forever, or that they are doing the will of God and therefore will abide forever, that they can be secure, that they can rest in him. And as we prepare to leave today, I would urge you, do not love the things of this world. Heed John's warning. Heed his command. It's actually a command there. Do not love the world or the things of the world. And this is actually the first imperative, the first real command that John gives. He describes, you know, walk in the light and things like that. But here he says, do not do this. 
Don't love the world. It won't last. But what we've seen, what we ought to love is our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to love the church because by that all men might know that we are Christ's disciples. It's how we show that and reveal that. We do the will of God by believing in Christ and loving each other. And by doing so, we bring God glory and honor and we rest assured knowing that we know him. We can rest assured and confident knowing that we know him because we do his will, because we obey his commandments to believe in Christ and to love one another. If you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, knowing that you have loved us. Knowing that you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to to make propitiation for our sins. That you are not simply a God who is angry and wrathful, but a God who has sent his son to deal with with the wrath and anger, the one who has actually made a great sacrifice so that he might be holy and righteous, both just and justifier. Lord, we thank you that you have sent Christ to do what we could not, and then therefore by being in him, we can be transformed and we can be shaped and we can love our brothers and sisters as Christ loved. We pray that we would know and rest assured that we know you because we've known Christ and because we love Christ, his body, his bride. In Jesus' name, amen.